Now, if you would like to take out your Bibles, we have a lot that we're going to cover this morning. If you do not have one, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Um, And also take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door and we can begin. We are in part 29 of our series entitled A Life of Worship, and it's rapidly coming to a close. Uh, If you look on your sheet, you'll realize this morning's message is called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Quick show of hands, how many people know that song? Yeah, all right, good amount of you. Now, this is, uh, this is a hymn going back a little ways, um, very, very powerful song. And for many of you, you know it in the little bit more of an old school version. Uh, I had that song sung around me for the first time in 1998, so much more recently, and they did a much more modern version of it. What it was was the first time I ever went to a Promise Keepers event, It was 1998 in Oakland Coliseum. There were 55,000 men singing this song. And it was an intensely powerful environment. So this song has always had a a special feeling for me since that event. Uh, But what I want to talk about this morning is uh, whether or not God is your fortress or whether or not you see him as such. So we'll begin with a couple questions Uh, Who do you turn to for protection? Simply put, who is your current defender? Uh, Does God make the top two? And, And what I mean by this is if you think about, practically speaking, when things get difficult, who do you run to? Uh, do you run to your spouse? Do you run to your parents? Do you run to your children? Do you run to your friends? Who is it that you immediately want to call when things are difficult or you're being hassled? And is God on that list at the top? Do you see him as a protector? Or are you still seeing God uh, through some means where he's a guy waiting to beat you up so you certainly wouldn't go to him when you're already having a hard time, you wait for, him, wait for life to go okay, then you engage with him when you feel like you can. If that is the case, we have something wrong in our theology. Because the Bible says that God is our rock and our fortress. Now, if you grew up uh, like me in the church, the idea that God is your rock and fortress has become cliche and has little to no meaning for you. Uh, I've always heard that all my life. If you go into a Christian bookstore or a Christian labeled bookstore, then you realize that it's on refrigerator magnets, it's on little clocks, and it's on all these different things, and, and it says, God is our rock. Now, to me, that doesn't mean anything because I don't protect myself with rocks. Uh, I, I look at it and I go, okay, so God is big and immovable. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Okay, all right, I can maybe buy that. That's cool. But I've never really had the chance to own it. Today, we're going to own that phrase. We're going to find out why it's so important and why it's so true and legitimate for you and for I. So who do you go to for protection? If it is someone other than God, let's say, for example, my children, when they're scared, they run to me. And I think rightfully so. I am their first level of protection, right? Uh, now, if they knew any better, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, if, we knew any, if they knew any better, they'd realize if they're in danger, their mom's tougher than I am, <laughs> right? See, if anything else happens, if someone breaks into a house, you need to worry about the man, right? Because he's probably going to rip your face off. However, if you endanger someone's children, 
the mama will rip your face off, right? So don't mess with a woman's children because then you're in danger. So, uh, but what they need to realize is that unless our heavenly father empowers me to defend, I'm useless. Unless our heavenly father empowers their mom to defend, she is useless. It is good for them to run to us, but we're ultimately impotent if we're not able to have God's power rain down, right? So even if you do not say that you trust in God personally for your defense, you are. Because he's the one that empowers your defender. The bottom line is this. It's a fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. God is our rock and our fortress. Regardless of how you want to look at it, the ultimate one that's going to defend you or not is going to be the God of the heavens. That's it. Yahweh. God is our rock and our fortress. So because we have so much material to dive into today, could you turn with me to 2 Samuel 21.1? 2 Samuel 21.1. In the Bibles that are under the chairs, it's page 273, 273, to kind of follow along. We're going to be covering a, a series of chapters today, so I'm going to be paraphrasing and then going back and forth into the Word. But let me give you a little recap and information about where we are in the story. As I mentioned, this story is coming to a close very rapidly. We've been studying the life of Saul against the life of David. Hopefully you've enjoyed that part of the series. And as it's wrapping up, by we're now in chapter 21. At the end of chapter 20, for all practical purposes, David's life story has been told. So why do we have more chapters? Because if you've ever read a book with an appendix at the end, what an appendix or appendices, if you have multiple, what they do is give you information that you missed along the way. It jumps back in time and says, oh, I need to explain this, 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 and this. I don't want you to leave without knowing this or this. That's what an appendix does. We are about to read those. So as far as chronological order, we're jumping out of it right now. The first story we're about to read takes us back between chapters 9 and 16. It or, it's, we have to scoot way back just to read that story. So why is it in here? Well, as you look at these, you're going to see two stories about God's wrath falling upon Israel because of poor choices of their king. One by Saul, one by David. You're going to read stories of mighty exploits of David and his mighty men beating up the bad guys with the power of God. And you're going to read two songs that David wrote, one super long, one super short, about how good God is. Those all seem rather random until you realize Hebrew structure. The way that it works is that when the Hebrews throw in extra information, they usually make it fancy in some way. And so what they do is they make it into a V shape. They have two stories at the beginning and end that are the same. And then the closer you get in, they're, they're uh, each like each other. And then in the center, we have these two songs about God. It creates a V structure called chiasm. So these are not randomly put together. They're put together in a very organized fashion, but it doesn't sound like that when you read through it. I just need you to know that it's not accidental. So the first thing that we're about to read 
is Saul made poor decisions and the ramifications of that echoed throughout Israel even after his death. He did not live a life of worship. We've seen that over and over and over. And that ripple effect continues to kill people even after he's gone. So let's dive into Scripture, and I'll show you real quick as we go into 21. Let's throw up some maps if we can, Gary. Um, right here we have, the once again, the modern-day uh, names for some of these countries to give you an idea about where the Middle East is in our world, the top of Africa here. The Middle East is all in this area. We're going to zoom in right there on Jerusalem. Now, on this map, we're going to leave this up the whole time that I'm teaching because we're going to be mentioning places like Beit Shan. It looks like Beth Shan when you look at it on the map. Uh, Beit Shan is there in the north. Jabesh Gilead is on the right-hand side or east side of the Jordan River. And then down here we have Gibeah and Zela, Bethlehem, these types of areas. So whenever I mention it, you can just look right over my shoulder and take a look at the map and you'll know what we're talking about. So as we begin, you're going to see a little bit of this map come to life. It says in verse 1, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year. Now a famine that may be accompanied by a drought is not all that unusual in the Middle East. When I was over there with our group uh, just this last year, uh, we learned very quickly that Israel always prays for water. They've always had a problem with water. If you want any water, you have to be in the north. Anywhere around the Sea of Galilee in this region, that gets more rainfall. Once you go past the midpoint down, it's dry. And they have to wait for the rainy season. In the dry times, it's really dry. Whenever you see anything in Scripture that talks about the arid desert or the jackals and the Dead Sea and nothing lives there and out in the middle of the shepherds wandering in the dry place, all that is south. All that is down here by the Dead Sea. All right, so it's not unusual that there wouldn't be enough water. They know that. They wouldn't call that a famine or a drought. They'd call that every day. But when something happens to an extreme... And the phrase is, year after year, it was a consistent problem. They began to go, something's not right. This is not a normal rainfall problem. And things got ugly real quick. When you don't have rain and you have a famine for three years, all the storehouses are used up. What do you do when things get bad? Remember, who do you run to as your protector? Well, we know... That David is a man after God's own heart. Where is he going to go? Where we should go. He's going to consult the Lord. Take a look at the next line. And David sought the face of the Lord. Now, intriguingly, God answered him, probably through Gad the prophet. And the Lord said, there is a problem. There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. The who? Anybody remember this story? All right, let me bring you up to speed. 400 years before the story that we're reading now, Joshua entered in the promised land. Moses was not allowed to cross the river. Moses was only on the right-hand side. They did some territory gathering over here. Then Joshua moved across the river and entered in and began the campaign to take over the promised land. 
He took on a very heavily fortified city where its walls came tumbling down. That city was Jericho. After that, there was a small city they should have taken easily, but there was sin in the camp. That city was Ai. After Ai, they were about to move into the rest of the area, but now all the nations around them are scared out of their minds. Angels push the walls down. Mighty forces they can't see are fighting for this new team called Israel coming into their area. Everybody's freaked out. So they realize and do a little reconnaissance. They find out the plan is to destroy all people in this region. Well, what are you going to do? You're either going to fight against them or you're going to try to make a peace treaty. The law said they're not allowed to make peace treaties with you if you live in this area. So the Gibeonites, who were going to be on that list, came up with a plan. Their plan was, let's pretend like we're from super far away. Let's wear old clothes, bring in moldy food, look totally exhausted. We'll come in, say, hey, we heard about you from far away. We want to make a peace treaty with you. So sure enough, they did that. They came up to Joshua. Man, we're exhausted. We've come from so far away. We want to make a treaty with you. And Joshua says, well, you know, if you live here, we can't do that. And they said, well, that's good because we don't live here. And he said, men, what should we do? And they said, well, let's take a look at their bags. They look and there's moldy food in there. And Joshua said, that looks pretty legit to me. Didn't consult the Lord and made a peace treaty. He said, we will not slaughter you. You have our word by God. Right after that, they realized the guys live in the next neighborhood over. Whoops, that was awkward. And they said, you deceived us. And the Gibeonite said, yep. It worked. And all the men wanted to kill him. And Joshua said, hold up. Our word is our honor. We promised before God that we wouldn't kill him. We didn't promise we wouldn't make him slaves. And so the Gibeonites for 400 years were the slaves of the Israelites. They were gathered into Israel, but not part of Israel, if that makes any sense. Well, for some reason, it lasted for 400 years, but once Saul got around, something went terribly wrong. Let's take a look at the next verse. So King David called the Gibeonite peoples, and he spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul, the former king, had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Okay, we got to pause. What do you do? It's called genocide. It's called ethnic cleansing. It's all the horrific things that you hear about in the world today. Saul was going to do that. He was trying to wipe out the Gibeonite people from the face of the earth. Why would you do that when you've had a treaty for 400 years, man? Because Saul's not checking with God. He had all this fire in him. Man, Israel needs to be 100% Israel. We're the people of God. They're not the people of God. They're in our way. They're not legitimate peoples. Let's just wipe them all out and clear this rat infestation from our land runs ahead of God. God goes, I didn't ask you to do that. What do you think you're doing? Runs ahead, slaughters all these people. Some of them obviously flee and get away. Why we still have a remnant. Now here's what's so ironic about Saul. Saul lost his throne 
because he wouldn't wipe out the Amalekites. And now he's in trouble because he killed people he wasn't supposed to kill. He can't seem to get it right. He's not checking in with God and he's going off on his own plans in his own mind. You do that? Do you consult God in the movement of your family? Do you consult God in your workplace? I understand the idea of it's always kind of been like that. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. No. What if God wants to change the plan? Did you ask him? Did you check in with him? The Old Testament is full of stories on why we need to consistently check in with the Father. Prime example. Jake and I were praying this morning with Joanne. And we both agreed. Listen, we have a plan for this morning's message. We have a plan for this morning's worship. And then we prayed, Heavenly Father, if you want to change everything, we change everything. We're still tracking right now as to how this service is going to end. I don't know. Why? Because I have my plans, but I'm not here for me. I'm here for God. If he wants to hijack it and do something else, that's his business. I did not have it planned to pray protection over you in this group at the beginning of the service. That's something that got downloaded later. All right? Makes sense? Do we check in with the Father? I don't do it enough in my personal life. And it lends to difficulty. One of the great reasons why I feel confident about things that go on here is because I'm surrounded by accountability of people that will force prayer about everything. But Saul kept running ahead of God. And he slaughtered innocent people. And God was not okay with that. So it picks it up. So David said to the Gibeonites, well, what do you want me to do for you? How shall I make atonement? How do I make it right? How do I fix this problem that you may again bless Israel, the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, well, first of all, it's not about money. It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Even though he's dead, I realize his family's still loaded. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. We don't have the rights of Israel of eye for eye or next of kin to slaughter somebody that killed us. We're not Israelites. So David said, well, what do you say that I shall do for you? I understand what you're saying I can't do, but what do you want from me? And they said to the king, the man Saul who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel as we were promised. Let seven of his sons be given to us, that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And King David said, I will give them. Seven innocent men are about to be slaughtered because of the choices of a dead king. Leadership matters. Our choices matter. Saul did not do it God's way, and his family continues to suffer for it. The legacy that he has left is chaos and death. How did it go? Verse 7. But King David spared Mephibosheth, 
the son of Saul's son, David's best friend, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. If you remember that story, they were best friends. He said, dude, I'll watch over your family. If I go, you watch over my family. We said, absolutely. I I solemnly swear before God, I will do that. When there was a big war in the house of Saul versus David, a lot of Saul's family died. David came and found Jonathan's son, who was crippled, brought him in as one of his own kids, and has had him in his house. David cannot break one promise to try to fulfill another thing. So he protects that Mephibosheth in his household. He's not allowed to be hanged. But we still need seven of them. Where are we going to get those? So take a look where it goes from here. The king, David, took the two sons of Saul's concubine, Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul. Their names were Armoni and Mephibosheth. Wait, what? Two guys named Mephibosheth. That's a weird name, right? No, no, no. Hold on. If I said, how many guys here are named Bob? There's probably going to be more than one Bob here. If I said, how many of you are named John? There's a ton of guys named John, right? In the Bible, it's no different. We always assume that if one name is mentioned, that must be the same person. When we studied the story of Tamar, there were three. And we don't think that that is very common either. And we all know that in the New Testament, every woman is named Mary. Remember? You know that. Joshua was very common. Jesus was very common. John was very common. These names were very common. Why? Because when you have somebody that has some level of honor, you name future generations after them. So we now have, we have a Mephibosheth that is Saul's son, and then a Mephibosheth who is Saul's grandson. One is being named after the other. We got that? That's why. These are not the same guy. Two different guys. So he takes two from Saul's concubine, Rizpah, and five grandsons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Berzali, the Maholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest, which is early spring or around April. What's important about this story? Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, should have been on this list. He should have been one of the first to die. Why wasn't he? Because for a reason not due to him, a king protected and shielded him. Well, that's intriguing because the only reason David is still alive is because his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of heaven, the great king of the universe, for no reason of David's, is shielding and protecting him. Just as Mephibosheth, the crippled young man, is protected by a king, he's not always in contact with. We are protected by the king of heaven. What you're going to see in all these stories is protection and defense and protection and defense. Mephibosheth should have died. He didn't. Because someone delivered him. Let's take a look at how it goes. Let's watch another protection. Verse 10. Then the mama got involved. Then Rizpah, the mom of the two, 
the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth. That is a black garment that's used for mourning. She's sad because her two sons have been slaughtered and hanged and put out in front of everybody, exposed to the elements. That is a dishonor, but the point was they're going to hang them out before God to show we did what was necessary. Please heal our land. No one knew how long it was going to take. She didn't care. She sets up camp right by the hanged bodies, right by the dead bodies of her son, and they're hanging there. She can't take them down. And she took sackcloth, spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest around April until rain fell upon them from the heavens. If God waits for the natural rain cycle, that's October. That's a long time to be out there. Whether or not God answered earlier, we don't know. But watch what she does. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. What's she doing? She could not stop her sons from being hanged publicly. She cannot take them down. But what she can sure as well make sure of is that there's no way they'll be further desecrated. She will not allow the vultures to come down and pick out the eyes of her son. She will not allow the hyenas at night to begin to gather in or the beasts, the dogs that would come and chew at the bodies. She's not going to have any of that stuff. I don't care whether my son is alive or dead. There is no way I'm going to allow that to happen. And so here is a, for all practical purposes, a single woman She may have a husband. He's not camping out there. She is out there day and night, day in, day out, day in, day out, chasing animals away, keeping everything away. Why? Because even in their death, they're being shielded. Because someone's watching over them. Amazing. When David saw that, he was absolutely inspired, and he knew he needed to do something more. Take a look at the next phrase. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, he jumps into motion. Verse 12, David went and took the bones of the king Saul, the dead king Saul, and the bones of his son Jonathan, David's best friend, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, where they were currently residing, who had stolen them from the public square of Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father, and they did all that the king commanded. Let me remind you of a story. Saul was fighting on Mount Gilboa with his son Jonathan when he died in battle. Do you remember that? And then the enemies, who were super proud of their win, took him to Beit Shan, hung them up publicly on the walls of the city, exposing them to the elements as an embarrassment. Saul's home crew of Jabesh Gilead, where he had family ties, were not going to stand for that. They too shielded the dead. They broke through enemy lines, did what Saul and Jonathan could not do. They broke through enemy lines, took the bodies, took the bones, brought them back, and buried them and held them at Jabesh Gilead. 
But now at this time, David has seen more of this family fall. He wants them all buried together in their hometown. He goes up as the king of Israel, takes the bones of Saul and Jonathan, grabs the bones of the new seven, takes them all down south into Saul's home tribe of Benjamin and buries them in the family plot. Once again, more shielding for the dead. Look at the next line. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Why would God hold off until people are hanged and bodies are buried? And what does that mean? It means God is not okay with injustice. And God is not okay with his people doing stupid things that hurt other people. And God will not answer the prayers and bless and bring blessing upon his people when they are harming other people. I know Saul didn't consider the Gibeonites people, but God did. I know that in their mind, it should have never had to go this way. Who cares about those people? God cares about those people. And everybody wants to go on like it's no big deal, like we can just be the nation of Israel, God's people, and who cares what we do? So what if there's injustice in our land? That's not our problem. It is your problem. And God brought a famine into the land and said, I will not bless you until you begin to honor the people around you. This really came to light. As I uh, recently, Russ and I and our wives... Um, and some families with his church, we, we went down to IJM in San Francisco. International Justice Mission was having a, um, a meeting together where they were doing some fundraising. And so we all went down there, and uh, it was at an old hotel. Um, I think it was the Stafford Hotel, something like that. And we went in, and we went to a special thing with Gary Haugen, the founder of IJM. And, and someday I'll tell you the story of us in that old hotel with 13 of us in an elevator that got stuck. Um, It was not awesome and uh, not great for panic disorder, I'll tell you that. Um, So by the time we got out of that, we actually went to the event. And in the event, we were watching story after story of sex trafficking, slavery all over the world. And I was, I was looking at this. Now, some of you had a different experience than I did growing up. Some of you lived in fear growing up because of your environment. That was not my experience. Uh, my family, super loving. My parents were separated. We know that. But very loving. My dad was always loving. My mom was always loving. My siblings were always loving to me. Our household was always peaceful. And I could rest there. But that is not how most of you grew up. Many of you grew up in fear in your house. So when I start talking about peace and protection and shielding, you know what I mean. You know it better than I do. The way that it engages with me is that though my environment was 100% safe and secure, I grew up with panic disorder. So my world always felt unhinged. My world always felt in danger. It was not logical. It was completely phobic. 
but I was always scared and no one could solve that problem. So God was the only one that could come and shield me and rescue me. So do I get it? Of course I do. But when we're talking about physical protection, some of us really, really need that in our lives. And I began to look at all these stories of people throughout the world that are forgotten and left. That are being held in slavery camps. That are being sold into prostitution at the age of seven. And I'm watching these stories and and I'm thinking of all the times that the people that were in that room, many of them non-believers, would all have the same question in mind when God's name is brought into the conversation. And the big question was always, God, why would you let this happen? And here's how I felt God may answer that question. How can I let this happen? Have I not resourced you? How can you let this happen? They're in your land. Did I not give you resources? Did I not give you a plan? Did I not give you the mandate? Don't ask me why I'm letting it happen. Let me ask you. Why are you letting it happen? Are you not the defenders? Are you not those that shield? If you are safe today, it is your responsibility to turn around, look across the street, and make sure other people get across the street. Yeah? And that's why we take this on in this church. It is our job to look over injustice, because God is not going to bring healing to lands when injustice is just let to happen. Like, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. And God said, where are my defenders? I've defended you. You're safe under my shield. Why then would you not defend another? Hmm. The next four stories, I'll paraphrase because they're very simple. There are four stories of the Israelites beating up the bad guys, the Philistines. And in every story, a mighty man steps up, beats down the bad guy who is a descendant of Rapha. Rapha is a descendant people group of the Anakites who were the giants in the land. You go, where did they come from? Well, my personal opinion is they track all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. If you want to read a freaky story, read the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. The men of renown. For whatever reason, the gene pool got whacked. And we started having enormous people. They migrated down into the Philistine region. That's why we have guys like Goliath. Nine and a half feet tall, not normal, right? So we have these massive, enormous people. Remember when they spied out the land 400 years before that? They said, there's giants in the land. I'm not going in there. No way. They make us look like grasshoppers, they said. Enormous people. And then it starts recounting. One of them had 24 digits. Six fingers, six toes. You know that there is an adjustment in the gene pool somewhere, right? You got guys that are so big, he has a spear where the head of the spear weighs seven and a half pounds. Now, I don't know if you can hold a stick with seven and a half pounds from way out there and throw it accurately unless you're enormous. We have guys that are the brother of Goliath. We have all these things. And it talks about how David was about to be killed by one of these guys. And in comes flying Abishai. Remember him? We always know that guy. He comes in out of nowhere, kills the giant, and one after another, the giants fall. What does that mean? It means it doesn't matter who stands against the people of God. 
Giants don't matter. I don't care how big the problem is. If God is on your side, no one can stand against you. Period. If that's a battle he wants to fight, he will win every time. And then look at chapter 22. Just take a scan. Chapter 22, one huge song. It's also known as Psalm 18. There's a few adjustments in there. There's the first lines a little different, and they changed it for corporate worship. But in general, you have Psalm 18 right here in the middle of, or at the end of 2 Samuel. What does that song say? Well, I'll tell you, the essence of it is only verses 2 through 4. Let's read that one. And David said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Let me clarify why he keeps using that phrase. Why does David use rock? I don't have rocks protect me. But it's how David lived. Why? Remember how he spent his life? It was on the run. Remember where he was running? Among the rocks. This is not poetic metaphor fancy. This is straight up literal. David was heavily attacked two separate times and he pulled all his men and withdrew into a cave where it could be easily defended, shielded by rock that he called the stronghold. When Saul came to chase him and his men down, they actually got away by hiding away in the rocks. I understand that we look at it and we go, oh, that's so poetic and cute. That's not his point. His point is, rocks saved my life. God is my rock. God is my stronghold. God is my fortress. Why? Because it's the only stuff that kept my life when everyone's trying to kill me. It was the cliffs. It was the mountains. It was the holes in the rocks. That's how I stayed alive. That was God's provision for me. So let's make it a little different for us. I can't say God is my shield and it have any meaning for me because I don't use shields. But when you're a warrior and you're having arrows shot at you, the only reason you're alive is because of your... You fall down behind it. You hide behind it. That makes sense to you. So let's change it for us. What is it for you? What is it that keeps you alive? I want you to reflect back in your life. When you should have been dead and you're not. Why? What was it? God is your what? God was your seatbelt, your airbag? Is that what you want to call it? Because you know you should have slammed right through that windshield. You know you should have been dead. But an airbag stopped you. What was it? What? Uh, was it maybe you being in the hospital and it was a breathing machine? God was my breathing machine. God was my what? We can go on and on. God was my police officer that stepped in when someone was trying to kill me. God was my... You fill in the blank, whatever it matters to you, because that's what David did. He used something very tangible and very basic of what shielded him and said, that is God to me. God is our protection, is the point. And here's what his song says. I'll paraphrase it for you. It's pretty simple. Things got bad in my life. They got really, really bad for a while. But I cried out to God and he heard me. And then God got angry at my injustice. And the smoke began to billow and his eyes began to blaze. 
and lightning began to strike out. And he rode upon the clouds, upon the cherubim, his mighty angels. And he came down and ripped apart heaven and earth and came into my situation. With fire all about him, the earth began to shake at the very voice of God. And he entered in and fought my battles for me. He rescued me because he likes me. Maybe some of you don't understand that God likes you. He rescued me because he delights in me. No enemy could stand against him. All the times that I lived a life of worship, all the times that I chose God instead of the world, he rewarded me for that. He didn't miss it. God, you humble the proud, but you raise up the pure and the humble. With you, I can do anything. You shield me and you train me for war. And all my enemies fall before me when I'm with you. No matter who seeks to crush me, you have made me victorious. And for these things and more, I will praise you among the nations. That's his song. Some of us need to read that song tonight before we go to bed. Because you need to be reminded of the warrior king that you serve. And you need the Jesus of Revelation that rides in on a horse with a sword strapped to his side and can slay a million in one swipe. Maybe you need to remember how tough your God is. Check it in chapter 23, verse 1 as we close out. Now these are the last words of David. Remember I told you there were two songs. First one was super long, second one super short. This is the last psalm that David wrote in his life. It's not his last words. He probably had a word like, I'm tired. I need a drink of water. They didn't, rec- they didn't write those. All right? This is his last big song. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of a man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. How, what did he write? Verse 2. The spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on man like the morning light, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken out by hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of his spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. What does it mean? It means when you have the power to influence situations and you lead under the fear of God and you look out for other peoples, it's like light shines down, casting the darkness away. Are you doing that in your friendships? Are you doing that for your children? Are you doing that for your church? Are you doing that for your ministry? Are you defending and shielding other people? David did, and God said, I like that. You look like me. The final passage is a recount that we've already studied earlier in our series, the recount of David's mighty men. The one who could go down to a pit on a snowy day and kill a lion. The one who could stand one man against 300 men and win. Why do you think these men were gathered around David? Because God brought them. Why were they able to do heroic acts that go down in history? 
Why could one stand and fight a whole army until he was so exhausted his hand bent around and he couldn't even open his hand around his sword? Because God empowered him. Why is David still alive in our story? Because God is his rock and his fortress. Is he that for you? Some of you need that really desperately. So here's what we're going to do. If you feel that you need shielding and protection in your life, something about your life is vulnerable, something is under attack in some way, shape, or form, emotionally, physically, mentally, whatever it is, if you need defending today, I want you to stand up. We're going to pray for you. I want you to stand up right where you're at. If you need defense, stand on your feet. I want everyone around you, lay your hands on them. If you cannot reach them, extend your hand out to them. We are going to pray for them and we are going to shield them as intercessors. We are going to call down heaven's power that God would move on your behalf because we love you and God loves you even more. And God is strong enough to do it. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father. We pray right now that you would send your angels to protect them. That, Lord, that you would move heaven and earth to make sure that they are safe. That, Lord, that tonight would be the sweetest, most calm, most peaceful night of sleep that they've ever had. That, Lord, that you would bring in a tangible, palpable feeling of you being around them. That they would know that the armies of heaven are at your command, Jesus. That at a moment's notice, if an enemy dare try to touch them, that you could destroy them with a word. That, Father, demons fear you. The enemy should be scared of you. Because you are mighty, you are great, you are powerful, you created all things, you sustain all life, and you can shut it down with a thought. So we pray right now that each and every one that has stood up and said, I need defending, I need a protector, I need a deliverer, Jesus, would you be that to them? Would you bring in, if it's not a part of your will, if you do not need them to walk through this pain, I ask that you change it in Jesus' name. I ask that you would bring in by the blood of the cross, freedom and protection and healing by your stripes we are healed. And I ask, Lord, that you would change things in their life, that they would know that when they walk in their house, that you would go to every one of these houses and clear out the garbage. Lord, if any demonic forces come against them, I ask that your angels would go in before them, before they open that door to their house and that you would chase it out. And all darkness would be expelled and flee, and they would be able to walk peacefully in their home. We pray down this protection in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated.